Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kylan, friends. Thanks for being with us. Crystal, nice to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> I don't know why I did this one so official. <laughs> this is a very official beginning, if I don't say so myself. Um, today's show is brought to you by Nobody, because that's how we roll. That's right. You guys. It's brought, it's brought to you, brought to us by you guys, brought to you by you guys. It's you guys pay for the show. Thank you. We, we appreciate it. You <laughs> so, make it happen. Yeah, you make it happen. We don't accept any ad money, and we're very proud of that fact, which is why I'm bragging about it right now at the top of the show. But anyway, uh, today we're having a lovely conversation. Yes, with a labor organizer. I actually got to speak with her briefly on Breaking Points and really loved what she had to say. Um, her name's Daisy Pet. Pitkin. She just wrote a book called On the Line, A Story of Class Solidarity and Two Women's Epic Fight to Build a Union. She's also involved in the Starbucks organizing effort, so she can speak to that. Starbucks has decided they are going all in on union busting, like amping it up even to higher levels. But she also can speak to the broader labor movement and the Amazon labor union, which I obviously am extremely excited about because of the transformational possibilities for the working class. So very timely guest we have here. So she's uh, a labor organizer She's mm -hmm. part of a union called Unite. Yes. And from what I understand, you were telling me that Unite is one of the more aggressive unions in terms of organizing people. That's so right. So this is not a defensive outlet. This is a very offensive outlet. And she has been on the front lines mm -hmm. of going into some of the most difficult possible workplaces, conditions in, you know, staunchly anti-union conservative states um, with immigrant workers who are fearful not only of, you know, the constant union busting, but also sometimes of immigration. And so she really has, you know, a visceral experience with just how hard it is for working class people, for workers to get representation and be able to exercise the legal rights they're supposedly entitled to. So, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to the conversation. It's going to be a good one. But before we get to that, um, why don't you tell me a little bit about. What was the first story we were going to cover again? Well, we could talk either about there's a little personal development with regard to Spotify no. and Breaking Point. Let's, let's wait on CNN that one. Plus. Let's wait. On, oh, the CNN Plus. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. This story is. <laughs> go ahead. This is this is fun. <laughs> okay. So as you guys know, CNN Plus had their big flashy launch with exciting personalities like Wolf Blitzer, Anderson Cooper. Jake so, Tapper. So this is the live stream. Let's explain to everybody just the basic. This yeah. is the their live stream effort to try to compete with new media, basically. Because look, the reality is CNN makes buckets and buckets of money from traditional cable news. Buckets but they also, <laughs> We're on they, top also <laughs> they also they um, also recognize that their average viewer is like sixty eight years old, mm -hmm. like 67, 68, somewhere in there. Um, that the cable news model overall is dying, um, matter of when, not if. And so they know they got to do something. And Zucker's last big push before he got pushed down was putting together CNN Plus. It's their streaming effort. MSNBC already has one. It's called Peacock. Um, Fox ha already has one. It's called like Fox News Nation or something. I didn't even know Fox had one. That's oh, you didn't? No, Yeah, that's where like Diamond and Silk had and a show there. And Lorenzo had a show over there. Yeah, she yeah. got hired for that. So they've spent a lot of... Actually, Tucker has a show there, too. Really? That even oh, people don't right. watch the, any of it. in the wood room. In the wood room. Why that's, are you in a wood room? Yeah. <laughs> that's a, like, and that's an expensive doing? wood room, too. We know how much sets cost. That's a lot of money that they put into that so weird room. Silly. Anyway, yeah. um, none of them is going very well, although they don't really publish their numbers, which is proof that it's not yeah. going well. Because if it was going well, they would do. They would tell you all about it. Okay. So, so this is CNN's Netflix or CNN's Disney. 
Disney Plus. That's what this is. They're attempted that. They're attempted right. that. Yeah. Yes, except without the content that anyone wants to watch. Okay. True. So, <laughs> um, we have a little bit of indication of how this was is actually going. And this is from TechCrunch. So it's not some like partisan or anti-CNN outlet. They say CNN plus launch might be off to a bumpy start, numbers suggest. CNN Plus launched on Tuesday, March 29th, and is already showing mediocre results in terms of standalone mobile app installs. Sensor Tower released its initial figures that show the CNN app, which now houses that new streaming service, added about 18,000 installs on the day of launch. During the seven days ending March 22nd, it had an average of 9,000 installs per day. 18,000 installs for the app. And they go to great lengths to say, listen, this may not be the complete picture. It could be, you know, you can access the service in other ways. It could be even like a little bit overstating the picture because how many of those people downloaded the app, looked at it and were like, oh, I have to pay? I'm not putting my credit card number in. Getting someone to download an app is one thing. Getting them to enter their credit card number and actually pay you is a whole other thing. Yes. So let me put that in perspective for everybody. I would say that my channel, Secular Talk, is sort of like a mid-sized YouTube channel, right? If I launched an app, I would have more than 18,000 downloads in the first day. Yes. Now, I don't know if you got to this part in the article yet, but I want to tell everybody the amount of money that they spent pushing this thing $250 million. That's what they spent on advertising. $250 million. They advertised everywhere. There were billboards, probably in Times Square. They took out ads during the Oscars, which cost like $2 million a spot. They took out ads during the Oscars. They they were running ads on your channel, Breaking Points, which is hilarious because, like, they're basically paying you and Sagar to relentlessly shit on them, which is, like, <laughs> it's, like, by the way, back in the day, like, the Mormon church ran some ads on my channel. Oh, uh, that's And I was perfect. like, this is, yeah, this is glorious. That's So I, I don't think people have to worry about me selling out to the Mormon church. It's more like my, my enemies are paying me, which is glorious. Anyway, um, 18,000 the first day, then 9,000 after that. Then they have the nerve. They did an interview with, what was it, CNN? One of the head CNBC. guys, CNBC, CNBC, mm-hmm. and they go out there and they're like, actually, it's uh, it's exceeding our expectations. Right. You spent two hundred fifty million dollars on advertising, got eighteen thousand signups on the first day, nine thousand on the second day, and you're saying it exceeded your expectations? Like I said, if I launched an app, a mid-sized YouTuber, some schmuck nobody, if I did it, I would get eighteen thousand downloads. I get more than eighteen thousand in one day, and my advertising budget would have been zero dollars and zero cents. This is the most glorious failure of all time because apparently, Crystal, they were just high on their own farts, and they truly thought like, no, you don't get it. Like Wolf Blitzer is genuinely popular. Anderson Cooper is genuinely right. po- Don Lemon yeah. is genuinely popular. It's not that CNN is a cable news network, and so they have a captive audience, so CNN is basically only on in airports and barbershops and places where nobody's watching, right? They genuinely thought, well, if we launch it, why wouldn't you want to see Chris Wallace be boring and spew conventional wisdom? And, like, you made a good point last night about this, talking about, um, like, Disney Plus, for example. Yeah. If you're a parent, Disney Plus is almost an essential Because kids love Disney, all the Disney movies. All of their stuff is consolidated in that area. There's a reason why you get it. Netflix is good for adults because Netflix has all these amazing series that sort of like take risks, which you don't usually see on like network TV anymore or cable TV anymore. And so, you know, that seems sort of essential. They have some cool stuff that drops there every now and then. 
What is CNN Plus? People don't even want to watch regular CNN, and it's free. Why would anybody want to watch? Why would anybody want to pay to watch CNN? Yeah, they convince themselves that the fact that they have this, like, rigged market and a certain number of viewers that just sort of, like, automatically show up and have it on in the background translated into actual interest in these specific personalities. Because it's a totally different thing to, you know— happen to have cable news on because that's your habit and it's on in the background or it's on at the airport or it's on at the restaurant or whatever. And to affirmatively say, you know what? I really want to see what Wolf Blitzer's take is on this story. Or I really want to see Chris Wallace's interview with William Shatner. Or, and I'm willing to put download the app, put in my credit card, pay, go navigate through and find this thing. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking, just consider this, this one little data point. Brian Stelter, when he went on vacation from his normal CNN show, the ratings went up. <laughs> they gave him, <laughs> they gave him a daily show on this thing. Like Casey Hunt is people, my favorite. People have already like demonstrated to you. I don't, not only do I not want more content from this guy, I actually want less content from this guy. And you're like, daily show, that's K- the ticket. Casey Hunt is my favorite because she has what I would describe as anti-charisma. Like, you want to not pay attention as she—you instantly want to stop listening as she starts talking. I mean, CNN's whole model was basically to have sort of interchangeable, nondescript news bots mm. who basically all do the same thing. Yep. And then you want to break it out and be like, no, actually, we believe they're stars. Um I don't know. The so far, is, it seems not to be play, working out for them. And the thing is, they really, they offer nothing. Like, that's the thing. It'd be one thing if the delivery was lacking and they're not charismatic, but they have, like, poignant things to say, you know, Honestly, or vice versa. Yeah. You don't have poignant things to say, but you're actually charismatic and interesting. They, it's just, it's a wasteland. And, you know, think about the way it works. Like, people are, act in management, people are actively choosing who are we going to promote, who's going to get a show, who does... What the fuck does Jeff Zucker know about what's interesting and entertaining and and accurate? He's just a random dude. He doesn't know anything. In a weird way, I always said this about new media. In a weird way, this is like the true free market. Yeah, well, because that's it's what like, they're finding out. Yeah, because it's like you have all these endless options. Mm-hmm. And for somebody to really say, no, I'm going to listen to that and I'm going to listen to that regularly— you're, there's genuinely a connection there. Like, you're genuinely offering something that the person is interested in. Right. And that just doesn't exist. You have an ocean of content, and you have to pick out individual creators. The people who are on TV, on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox, they're charity cases. That's what they are. Yeah. You know, it's just, we're going to prop you up fakely. That's what it is. I mean, they basically have, their their pitch to people is basically like, pay for CNN only a little worse. You know, and devastating. That's so true. Right. <laughs> it also it sort of shows a level of contempt for the independent media ecosystem. Right. Because as you said, I mean, look, there's plenty of crappy independent media too, but there's also really good, like high quality stuff mm-hmm. that both of us have really leaned on for, you know, understanding the relevant history in Ukraine and Russia and different thinkers that you don't get to hear from in long form and analysis of the military tactics. And all of that already exists. So for you to provide something that's actually going to be a value add for people to the point that they say, yeah, it's worth it for me to go through the trouble to download this app and find this thing and put in my credit card info and spend my hard earned dollars on this thing every month. You've got to contribute something that is actually going to be not only valuable for them in terms of the information, but it's going to be something they believe in that they can sort of lean into as a project. Like, I, I believe in supporting this particular mission that you're engaged 
agent, what is, they don't have a mission. They don't have any like thing they're doing in the world other than trying to make money. I, I like your point that it's sort of a smack in the face to independent media because they're trying to jump into more of the independent media game and they feel like they'll just cruise if they just jump into the game. Mm-hmm. They're definitely not going to. Their numbers are horrendous as we just learned, but they're going to find a way to rig it. Yes. Because they always do. I mean, that was my, my, oh my God, people... You wouldn't believe it if you weren't online in like 2013, 2014, 2015. You wouldn't believe it because CNN would post videos and I swear to you, a lot of them would get less than like a thousand views. They got nothing. I mean, nothing. And they post it all the time, but they got nothing. And the reason why was there was not an algorithm that propped up what's called, quote unquote, authoritative content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just like, look, we'll put it out there. And you it's like sink or swim. Like if you actually gain some steam, then the algorithm rewards you for gaining that steam. And so you had this exponential growth among independent media channels like like mine, where I would put some out there. And, you know, I, I don't think I could make it. I don't think most people can make it in today's YouTube especially in news and politics. Yeah, because right. they, they press so hard the authoritative content, it's boosted by the algorithm relentlessly, and all the independent and new media stuff is sort of buried now. And so they never would have been able to compete if not for the algorithmic rigging effectively. Yes. And so now what I'm afraid of, you made a good point, and they even mentioned in the article that they're probably going to end up doing some sort of package deal with, with Discovery H- Plus or right. HBO or something. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this way you take the content that's actually good that people like, and then you, you sort of put this on top of it with it, and then they'll turn around and brag about their numbers as if, like, you know, they earned that on their own volition. And it's like, no, you just were you hopped on the bandwagon of something that was actually successful right. the same way that they rigged the, YouTube rigged the algorithm for them to do well on YouTube. Well, and there was also news that came out literally on their launch day that they were already looking at layoffs. Yes, I covered that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But to your point, you know, as fun as it is to mock them for their really embarrassingly pathetic performance here after spending a quarter of a billion dollars on getting to this launch date. Yeah, instead of saying, all right, clearly this was a swing and a miss. What could we do to like actually compete with the content that exists out there? They're not going to do that. They're, the question they're asking themselves right now is how do we rig this market to like force it to, su- to succeed and to crush the competitors that are actually good and that are actually working? And that's why this is dangerous and why it is both a moment of like opportunity and danger in terms of the independent media ecosystem, which I think is incredibly vital for like having just kind of the basics of a democracy in this country. Because on the one hand, CNN clearly recognizes and MSNBC clearly recognizes the New York Times and Fox News, all these outlets really recognize that their old models are not working anymore. So especially with cable news, you see the court, you see younger generations are not tuning into you. You see the trust has fallen off a cliff. You see with Trump gone, the ratings are way down. All of those things are really manifest. And they were manifest before the Trump era, too. I mean, I was there at MSNBC and they were already in panic mode over like, what do we do? Because younger um, Americans are just not going to watch cable news. So they have a major issue there. They recognize it. And they're trying to make these plays into more independent media spaces. And so it's a good thing because there's an opportunity for us to kind of be a, a more um, more credible competitor to the mainstream. But the danger is that they're going to try to snuff us out, try to destroy the landscape, try to dominate whatever the new thing is. Yeah, so. and like I said, there's already they've already done that to yeah. a large extent. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so absolutely. now it's just like, you know, it gets worse and worse as time goes by. So anyway, I mean, I, I, let me ask you a question. There's a random yeah. question to end on here, but are they going to have ads on it too? I don't actually, I don't know. Okay. 
Okay, because I would break some shit if they had ads on it too. But you have to think they probably, I mean, they're not going to be I mean, satisfied just with subscriber revenue. Usually they're gonna, the point of a subscription model is so that you, you don't have ads. Right. I mean, that's like your mm -hmm. premium acts like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it, I don't know. People drive me crazy. It's like that new Bill Maher podcast, which I suffered through a couple episodes of. Um, he has ads. And he, he made it seem like, oh, I want to do something different. Like, I want to get into, the, you know, this game here. And it's like, he made it seem like, oh, it's just for fun. Like, in my little break time that I have during my week. And he's reading ads for mm -hmm. products I 100% know Bill Maher doesn't use. Right. It's like, bro, you're Bill Maher. You're worth a gazillion dollars. Do you really need to do ads? It's, it, all, it's, it all feels so fucking soulless to me. It really does. Yeah. Like, it's just everybody's trying to get, do the money grab and, and climb the ladder without putting in the work. And it's, ugh. I want to take a shower. Yeah, indeed. Well, it's not going well for them, but that doesn't mean that they won't ultimately win the day in the end, sadly. Um, all right. So this was kind of an interesting little thing that just happened. Um, we just got a note at Breaking Points from Spotify that they are effectively being forced to discontinue service in Russia. And I'll just read from you a little bit of the um, email that we got. It says, Spotify has continued to believe it's critically important to try and keep our service operational in Russia to provide trusted, independent news and information in the region. Unfortunately, recently enacted legislation further restricting access to information, eliminating free expression and criminalizing certain types of news puts the safety of Spotify's employees and possibly even our listeners at risk after carefully considering our options and the current circumstances we have come to the difficult decision to fully suspend our service in Russia. Um, I reached out to our friend Yegor, who um, is in Moscow, to see what sort of communication he'd gotten from Spotify on their end. The Russian Spotify listeners got a very sort of generic, like no explanation as to why service was being pulled. All that they said the headline here is Spotify suspends service in Russia. Hello. After carefully considering the current circumstances, we have come to the difficult decision to suspend the Spotify service in Russia from April 11, 2022. We hope this additional information answers questions you may have. Thank you from all of us at Spotify. So basically Spotify is done in Russia, which is kind of sad. So uh, this is your comeuppance for pushing fake news. <laughs> That's um, what this is really about. You should apologize and you should not I'm deeply ashamed. promote uh, anti-Russian propaganda as much as you do. <laughs> I guess that's that? what that is. Yeah. Um, so it's gone, it's gone, I mean, it's, it's worse than that, actually. So the Spotify is the new one. Right. And, you know, it, it sucks because, like you said, there's going to, all this great content now is going to be missing. Now, people do, people who are tech savvy would use a VPN, which would get them around all these bans. Yeah. But the question is, and I'm, you know, I'd love to see some empirical research on this, is like what percentage of the population knows to use a VPN versus... Right, it's very generational. Right. So yeah. like, obviously, I mean, I communicate with Yegor on Twitter all the mm -hmm. time and Twitter is already banned in Russia, but he's able to use a VPN connection to have no issue. And he said, you know, there have been previous crackdowns before during protests that where everybody kind of learned how to use a VPN to get around whatever the um, the bans and the censorship. But I would imagine was. it's at least like fifty percent, right? That don't that are just like, oh, it's banned, it's banned. They I would know. I would think it's at least fifty percent, right? And uh, like I said, I think younger Russians very much more likely to know how to get around it than older Russians, and I think that plays out also in terms of the public sentiment in country um, about the war and whether they buy into oh, it's just a special military operation and we're denazifying it. So. Um, March 21st, 2022, article in NPR, a Russian court bans Facebook and Instagram as extremist. And then article from The Guardian, 
Um, they say Russia blocks access to Twitter as well. So you got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, Spotify, and then you got all the independent media outlets in Russia have effectively been banned. Yes. And so, you know, we talk all the time on this show in, in the context of the U.S. about, look, we don't like the social media censorship. We don't like the way the algorithms are, you know, used to boost certain content as authoritative and bury other content. But you got to call a spade a spade. And the fact of the matter is for people who talk about that issue, but then they won't bring this up. What are they doing? Why yeah, would you mean, not talk about it? This they, is, they've this is outright even, criminalized. It's it's above and beyond, honestly, what oh, happens in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah, for sure. Now, don't get it twisted. You know, Julian Assange, Edward Snowden, there are plenty of examples of deeply authoritarian actions of the U.S. government. Right. Without a doubt. They banned all <laughs> of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and now Spotify. So your guy's show is probably going to take a hit. From what I don't know how many people in Russia were actually listening to your show on a regular basis. Either, to be honest, but it's got to be thousands of people now are not going to access it or they'll have to get a VPN in order to access it. You're going to lose some number of people as a result of this. Yeah. And it, it really is. I mean, again, I, I don't think we have a, a super sizable um, audience in Russia. That's never um, been apparent to me that we have a large listener base there. But it does make me sad because we really have tried very hard to present accurate information as best we can. And so it does feel like a small loss to not be able to have people in that country be able to hear what we have to say. And this is really no fault of Spotify. Like, you can't blame them whatsoever. They're looking at the fact that they've literally passed laws um, threatening fake news, threatening yeah. jail time <laughs> right. for mm-hmm. describing it accurately as a war. So, you know, I mean, when you look at that, like, what else are you going to do? But um, it is a loss and a sad sign of, you know, just how dangerous this time is and how much this is pushing us this whole situation, Russia's war on Ukraine is just further pulling the globe apart. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, I'll end on a slightly more positive note here, but really this is just idealism in a sense. I would love it if they could, if there could be some sort of global commitment to the general principles of freedom of speech and a free press. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually the, when you do it at the global level, usually it's it never really works because like Biden was talking about, we're going to do a minimum tax on corporation, a global minimum tax. And it's like one country is like, I don't want to do that. And the whole fucking thing falls well, apart. And so we're it's, usually that one country. Of course, yeah, it's like, let's so have true. global human rights. And we're like, nah, we're not. Right, Maybe yeah. for you guys, but, but not for us. <laughs> I would love that on this front of like some just broad commitment to to free speech and, and free expression and an open internet. But unfortunately, all the... Everything's going in the opposite direction. Everything is going to more. I'm sure the metaverse is going to fix this. Oh, yeah. That's what I think is coming to our rest. The metaverse is going to end up like the regular internet, where people just go there for escapism and porn. It's going to be worse <laughs> because it's even more like there's even more ways to manipulate you and like profit off of your pain. <laughs> I mean, the fact that the big land grab in the metaverse is like fake Rodeo Drive and fake like, you know, corporate space to sell you more stuff. It's like, do I really need more opportunities to have capitalism fuck with me? Not so much. Escape the real world hellscape and come to the virtual hellscape. Yeah, only this one with even more control from Mark Zuckerberg. Yay. Yeah, that's the guy I want ruling our lives. (laughs) But there is a hopeful story that is unfolding in our country right now um, that I'm truly excited about, which is these green shoots in the labor movement with um, the Starbucks workers organizing across the country like wildfire with the historic uh, union vote 
uh, in Staten Island for the Amazon Labor Union and the leadership of Chris Smalls there. We have a wonderful guest to talk about what it is actually like to be on the front lines of these struggles. Daisy Pitkin is a labor organizer for Unite. She is also the author of a wonderful new book that I've been reading called On the Line, A Story of Class Solidarity and Two Women's Epic Fight to Build a Union. Let's get right to it. Daisy, it's so nice to see you again. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Yeah, I loved getting to talk to you over on Breaking Points, and I thought there was so much more that we could possibly get into. And it has become even more timely since we first booked you to come on the podcast, because, of course, we have the historic union election um, for the Amazon Labor Union in Staten Island, JFK 8. Um, Just give us your immediate reaction to why that's so extraordinary and what you think it might mean. I'm so inspired by that victory. I think that it's incredible for a group of workers to organize themselves and each other and to stand up to that kind of power and vicious anti-union campaign, right? Um, And perhaps even more encouraging, I saw that Christian Smalls posted something about, you know, within the 24 hours after that victory, that group of workers got calls from 50 other Um, Amazon buildings across the country ready to go or interested in figuring out what the next steps might look like and taking guidance and, and, um, you know, from from the workers who had just won. We see the same thing on the Starbucks campaign after those workers in Buffalo won their election, calls just started coming in from store after store after store across the country. It's a real groundswell. um, And unlike anything I thought I would see in my lifetime as an organizer. And I'm just so happy to be here to witness it. Yeah. So one of the things that I covered on my show the other day is um, Howard Schultz is back as the Starbucks CEO. He previously was the CEO, then somebody else was there. Um, now he's a he's like a known union buster. He did this event the other day where he said, there's an outside organization trying to take our workers and unions are like, you know, assaulting a lot of uh, companies these days. And this is also coinciding with what's been described as a shock and awe campaign trying to bust up the Starbucks union. Um, Can you speak a little bit to that? What's going on on the ground? Um, Do we have a sense of, of what the strategy will be to fight back? Because I know looking at Chris Smalls, who you just alluded to, one of the you know, brilliant things that he did in the Amazon labor union fight is he sort of relentlessly went on the offense and any any little piece of ammunition that was given to him by Amazon management, he would flip it right back on them and then use it to his advantage, like when he was called inarticulate or whatever in the media. Mm. He was able to use that to, to his own advantage to organize more. So could you speak a little bit to what's going on right now with Starbucks? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm an organizer on the campaign, and I think I've never been more aware of the precarity of that role, right? That we have, that's a role that deserves examination, a paid staff union organizer. What is our job on campaigns where there really is an organic groundswell of workers who are excited about organizing themselves, taking charge of the organizing and the organizing strategy not only in their own own stores, but across the cities where they work and then from city to city, right? We're seeing this moment where um, some of the the classic union busting rhetoric 
just won't work on this campaign and wouldn't work at that place, at that Amazon warehouse in Staten Island either. I imagine, though, I didn't work closely on that campaign, right? I was watching it from, from Pittsburgh closely and excitedly, but just watching. Um, but, you know, that, that message about third-partying the union, which Starbucks is trying to make real on, you know, in store after store across the country that Workers United is doing this or is doing that or is, um, you know, this is the way it's structured or this is what they will do at the bargaining table. And that kind of trying to, to make the union seem like some outside force that's coming in to organize workers doesn't make any sense to workers on this campaign because it's not what's happening. What's actually happening on the ground is that Workers are organizing themselves and each other. They're at the bargaining table, bargaining contracts at the few stores that have already won um, their union elections, right? So a lot of the, the old playbook of union busting is backfiring. And I really think that these massive corporations, they're spending a ton of money union busting, right? I think the figure in the last year from Amazon was $4.3 million they spent trying to break unions failed, right? Um, but the, you know, their union busting is, it doesn't take into account the momentum of this moment. And one of the Starbucks workers here in Pittsburgh had a really good analogy for this the other day and told me, you know, everything they do, everything they say doesn't make any sense to us and it doesn't work. In fact, it backfires. It's just making us more angry and everything they do reveals more to us the need to have a union. And he said to me, it's like they're trying to stop a tidal wave with a water squirt gun. <laughs> like they're just squirting more just water. Adding more water. At the tidal wave that's <laughs> them. <laughs> There's no way to stop it. There's no way to stop it. I have observed a little bit of the same phenomenon from the outside. I mean, watching the Amazon labor union fight. You know, I mean, the classic example here is first they fire Chris, then they, you know, have this internal memo that leaks that says he's not smart or articulate, very racially uh, loaded language as well. And by the way, we want to make him the face of the union movement. And so he's like, all right, hmm. let's do it then. I'm the face of the union movement. Here we go. And I think even some more of their actions, like their their, uh, union busting, you know, lawyers, I think, came in and called some of the organizers thugs, again, which backfired. And so normally what these tactics do is they create a climate of fear where people who even may have been sort of pro-union or union curious to start with, they just become very worried about like, what does this actually mean? And am I going to lose my job? And oh my God, they fired Chris. So Lord knows they could fire me. But it feels like the climate is different now, such that when they fire Chris or they fire Layla Dalton, who's a worker organizer at a Starbucks, it doesn't seem like it scares people. It seems like it just enrages and emboldens them. I mean, I saw protesters come to the Starbucks that Layla had been fired from demanding that she be reinstated. And reportedly management was like hiding in the bathroom <laughs> scared because these protesters had come to the store super mad that Layla had been, you know, um, what appears to be illegally retaliated against. So do you get that same sense that because of 
COVID and because you had all this language about essential workers and because workers are just ever so slightly less invisible that they used than they used to be. And because you have this weird labor market where there's lots of jobs, it's just they're crappy jobs. People feel like, all right, what's the worst that happens to me? You fire me from this crappy job. I'll go get another crappy job. That's no big deal. The fight is to make this job right now an actually decent, good, dignified job where I have some say and some control over my day to day life. Yeah, I think a lot has happened over the last few years to really lay bare for working people all of the forces at work that are stacked against them. And people are just fed up, right? And they're going to fight back. Um, labor law is broken in this country. So the way that we have to fight back is very visibly um, in a in a massive, collective, militant kind of way. That's the way we're going to win. And I think people understand that from sort of day one on the campaigns that they're running, that, um, you know, labor law and the NLRB are not going to save us right now. We have to do this together. And in order to do that, we have to be really strong. And I also think, you know, I've, I've been a union organizer for about 20 years. And I see that how union busting works on campaigns and the fact that it's not working the same way on campaigns today. And I, I wonder a lot about these questions that you're asking about why that is, what's, what has changed. And I think that this community of workers, especially on the Starbucks campaign, are projecting strength to each other, right? Mm. Like normally busting works and it starts to scare a small group of people and fear kind of echoes or um, reverberates throughout a workplace and across workplaces through an industry. And instead of fear reverberating in that way right now, what we see is sort of strength and militancy reverberating. So, you know, workers get on a citywide or a regionwide or a nationwide organizing committee call. And they hear a story from an organizing committee member in another city saying, when they came to my store and they started holding captives, I just stood up and asked them, well, if you're telling me I'm not going to be able to transfer anymore if we vote for the union, it's you guys who are taking away the ability to transfer. So tell me, why is Starbucks trying to take away benefits that I have? Mm. You know, just to answer in the middle of the captive audience, saying, start asking questions start to disrupt their message, right? And so now there are captive audience meetings happening right now today at a store here in Pittsburgh. I'm getting text messages from the organizing committee there saying, here's what they're saying. Here are the leaflets they're handing out. And you know what they're doing? Standing up and saying, why would Starbucks say this? What do you mean by that? Why are you saying that you would like to take away benefits from us that we currently have? So they're sort of, they're networked with each other in such a way that when strength is projected in one store, it echoes all across the country. And it's really amazing to see. They're creating a culture of boldness and risk-taking and strength instead of the culture of fear that normally takes hold. And I saw some of this recounted in the Amazon struggle, too. I saw a great interview with um, Angelica Maldonado, I think is her name, in Jacobin. And she talked about how we went into these captive audience meetings that we weren't invited to. We know in no uncertain terms that they were going to kick us out. But we wanted to demonstrate to our coworkers that you had rights and that you could stand up to Amazon and that we shouldn't be like terrified of them. And so 
I think that, you know, even they arrested Chris and some others for like bringing in food to serve workers. And again, when you see that, instead of feeling like, oh, my God, that could happen to me, it was like, this dude's been fired. He's been smeared by the executives and now he's been arrested and he's still here fighting. So what am I really afraid of? Yeah, I think when when workers, what I'm learning from this campaign, what these workers are teaching me on this campaign is that if if they witness their own capacity to be strong and to stand up to this multi-billion dollar company's very expensive anti-union campaign. When you witness your own capacity to fight, it transforms your capacity, Mm. right? Fighting begets more fighting. Strength begets more strength. If you witness your own capacity to fight, it changes you and you become even stronger. And so we have this, you know, massive group. There are now thousands of Starbucks workers in this fight. And we have this massive group of workers who are now, their capacity to fight is growing as we speak. Mm. And they're going to move forward Mm. in this company, in this campaign, in this movement that's inside Starbucks, but also through the rest of their lives in this country, in other workplaces, in other organizations, and have that capacity to fight for the rest of their lives. That to me is what's really incredible about this moment. Mm. So talk to me about some of the up talking about it. <laughs> talk talk to me about some of the slimy union busting tactics. Crystal mentioned one last night like mad boss, sad boss, happy yeah, boss or something some, like something that. Yeah, this is something I learned from your book. Yeah, is you talk like, about good boss, bad boss and sad boss and how you sort of use those archetypes to prepare workers for what they're likely to face in the union busting campaign. Yeah, so this is called inoculation, and it's one of the most important things that workers do with each other and organizers like me can help workers do during the course of a campaign. And it's to prepare for the anti-union campaign by letting folks know what they're about to face. And the more accurate we can be, the more specific we can be about what they're about to hear from the company, it the more power it takes out of that message, right? So on the Starbucks campaign right now, workers have made a anti-union bingo card with (laughs) phrases that they've heard store managers and district managers and regional managers say all across (laughs) the country. And we've disseminated them nationally. I love that. So some workers go right into the captive audience meeting with the bingo card and start checking off like, oh, (laughs) they said that. Oh, you said that. What are some of the and things? We have this big joke that if you, if you get bingo, you get swag. <laughs> um, really true. Have to have fun. You know, there will be joy in the revolution. Um, some of the things are um, telling them to be careful about what they sign. That's mm. a big phrase. Mm. Um, any sort of language that third parties the union. Um, any sort of language that talks about. Well, you d- there's no guarantee about what you'll get in your collective bargaining agreement. The suggestion being that you could end up with less than mm. you have now, right? Or like we could take away your Spotify benefit, which is a big thing that workers talk about on this campaign. But the archetypes, good boss, bad boss, sad boss, are kind of, it's like the trifecta of union busting tactics um, that bosses, it's like a menu of options that employers tend to use or borrow from in order to bust unions. So good boss being 
you know, offering to improve benefits or to solicit grievances from people so they can fix them to make workers feel like they don't need the union at the end of the day, or giving raises sometimes, offering big raises to people who are active on the organizing committee to see if they can dissuade them from leading the campaign inside the worksite. Bad bosses, the opposite, firing people, writing people up, threatening people, um, any of that kind of menu, threatening plant closure was a big thing in industrial laundries, which is an industry I used to organize in, right? Um, Starbucks, though, I'm hearing that there's a rumor going around in some of the stores now that they're threatening to license out some stores or something like that, which is mm. essentially threatening plant closure. Um, and then Sad Boss is maybe one of the most surprising anti-union, at least it was for me as an organizer, one of the most surprising tactics that companies use. And it's to have a manager who is well-liked, or at least one who thinks they're well-liked, go into, you know, talk to workers either one-on-one or in groups and express how sad it makes them that workers have decided to form a union instead of just coming to them with their issues, right? Sometimes they even cry. Um, I've seen that happen many times. You know, I don't like to see anyone cry, right? Even a terrible boss. But (laughs) often in captive audience meetings, they would run them dozens of them a day, end to end to end. And at one point during the scripted meeting, the same supervisor would come in and put on the sad face and even shed a few tears kind of over and over and over and over throughout the day. It's amazing. Saying, it's like, you know, it, it's aren't like, we a family? It, it's like a manipulative relationship. Oh, you know? yeah. You know what it seems like? Yes, that's exactly yeah. what it is. I've seen all those tactics. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just for me. I though. think we all have. Yeah. <laughs> um, Daisy, talk a little bit about how uh, the work you're doing right now supporting the Starbucks workers, how it's similar to and different from the work that you write about in this book, organizing um, industrial laundry workers who were based in Arizona, many of whom were immigrants, many of whom did not speak English. Um, How are these two fights the same and how are they different? They're they're the same in that it's really hard to organize unions in this country. It's hard because of union busting. um, And it's hard because labor law is broken and allows for really extreme forms of union busting and delay tactics from companies to try to kill momentum, right? So organizing is hard. And that's the same. That was the same in the early 2000s, which is kind of the timeframe that I write about in the book. Um, It has been the same for decades and it's the same today on Amazon and Starbucks and any number of the other organizing campaigns that are happening right now, which, you know, they're happening in many industries in many regions across the country. It's an exciting time, but organizing is really hard. Um, I think what's different is that the, the role or the perceived role of the paid union organizer, like myself has is shifting. And I think it's shifting in really crucial ways that mean good things for unions and internal democracy in unions and workers really taking the reins of their campaigns, their bargaining, and then the life of their union once it's kind of established and we're on the other 
the other end of collective bargaining, you know, that these workers have a have a, a different sense of their own kind of responsibility to the union that they're building. Um, and I, I'm really encouraged by that. I think, you know, in Phoenix in the early 2000s, organizing industrial laundry workers who, as you point out, were mostly immigrants, mostly women, um, there was another kind of groundswell that happened there. There were some very strong worker leaders. In fact, I write a lot about one of them. Her name is Alma. And she's one of the gutsiest worker leaders I've still ever met in my life. She organized her laundry, her hospital laundry. There were about 220 workers there. They washed linens from hospitals in the area. It's really tough, dangerous work. She organized that factory. And then she helped to organize other factories across Phoenix, right? And there was a groundswell of workers. The anti-union campaign <clears throat> worked differently on that population of workers. And I think it was um, the timing. I think it is that those workers were particularly vulnerable in a bunch of ways. Um, you know, this was Phoenix in the early 2000s, a deep red city in a deep red state in Joe Arpaio country. <laughs> hmm. You know, it take it. there were layers and layers of opposition that those workers had to stand up and face in order to, to organize, not just their employers, but the entire political climate of that place. Um, so it took, I think, different a different kind of bravery in some ways to do what they did. Um, but they organized and they won by and large, um, though it took years and years, right? Um, I think my role as a staff organizer there was um, it was a, a lot of heavy, it was some heavy handed organizing. I mean, we had to, we helped with everything from logistics to training about how to do house calls and how to talk about the union, um, to driving workers around the city so that they could talk to each other. Many of them didn't have driver's licenses and couldn't drive. Um, the public transportation in Phoenix, at least at the time, sucked. So there was a lot of that kind of hands-on day-to-day work from me as an organizer and the rest of the organizers on my team. On Starbucks now, it's different. <clears throat> um, you know, a lot of the workers come to the campaign with the sort of skills to do a lot of what it takes to administer a campaign, build spreadsheets track card signing in their own shops, set up Zoom links so that they can get on Zoom and, and talk to each other. And I think what it's teaching me as an organizer is that in order to, to run campaigns in, in this kind of way in the future, my job is to democratize the experience and expertise I have as quickly as I can mm. and then get out of the way, right? Mm. Teach the skills and experience that I have and then get out of the way so that workers can do the work of the campaign. What do you think um, the turning point was with labor organizing uh, in the U.S. recently? Because I don't know exactly what to attribute the, you know, colossal wave of union activity to. I mean, I think, was it the John Deere protest that was the first, like, really high-profile example of uh, you know, workers actually winning. Like they won, they rejected a contract that they thought was too meager, and then they ended up winning with all of their terms except one, 
which was the going back to the pre-1997 contract. But they, they won, you know, a, a lot of concessions. What do you think, um, to what do you attribute this, this giant wave? I think, I think John Deere was really pivotal, but, you know, before John Deere, the, I think this wave, and there are a lot of smart people doing a lot of smart talking about this, but to me, it seems that this wave started with the red state teacher strikes before mm. the pandemic, right? Um, and witnessing the capacity of teachers across West Virginia just saying, we don't care if this strike is illegal, we're going to fucking strike anyway, yeah. <laughs> you know? And then standing on the highway singing, oh, what is the song that they sang? Country Roads. Mm, I, they also <laughs> would over. sing Twisted Sister, we're not going to take it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There are the images of the sort of brazen um, work that teachers were doing in solidarity with each other. Watching people fight and win gives us the capacity to fight and win, right? I think the pandemic certainly accelerated some of the urgency around organizing. But I think that we're learning to win by watching ourselves win. And I mean ourselves by the working class, really. Um, but that winning begets winning, right? The boldness to reject that contract and just stay out is something that 20 years ago might not have happened. And now people are sensing that there's a turning of there's a turning of the tide. There's something else that's really interesting to me that's happening right now and that's really exciting, which is that, um, first of all, the media reported a little bit more on these struggles than they did even with, I mean, the teacher's wave was immense and it got barely any national media coverage because it didn't fit into some like weird Trump versus the Democrats or Russia narrative. Um, so it yeah. didn't get nearly the coverage that it should have given how truly extraordinary it was in modern times. This time around, look, they did, you know, they did cover John Deere. Um, they did cover what was going on in Bessemer. So you had a little bit more visibility. And then now um, that the Amazon labor union has won a victory in Staten Island, I've seen Chris Smalls on CNBC. I've seen him on MSNBC telling them that, you know, some of the Democratic Party's words are a little hollow on their support for labor rights. I saw him on TMZ. I saw him giving an excellent education on why everyone should have a union and why workers should stay in their job and organize rather than quit and go to another crappy job. Um, I saw Jimmy Kimmel talking about it and the audience, you know, really celebrating the victory on Staten Island. So it seems like there's also a little bit of a cultural shift, which I think does relate to these victories, which are extremely inspiring and which has, you know, with Starbucks and with Amazon, these wonderful stories, human stories behind it that people can just really celebrate. I think it has to do with the language of essential workers during the pandemic and also the fact, and this really struck me reading your book, like the work that the um, immigrant laundry, industrial laundry workers was doing is almost completely invisible, typically. Mm. Like people don't think about after this sheet goes off of my hotel bed, like what's going to happen to it? Where's it going? And whose hands are going to be touching it? You start the book with talking about laying in the hospital sick and thinking about 
this wonderful worker organizer, Alma, and the fact that, you know, she and her workers may have laundered this sheet before, may launder it after you're in it. And so I also think there was something about the pandemic that made some of these quote unquote essential workers who are treated most of the time as completely disposable by their bosses and by society as being more suddenly present and visible for people. And for the workers themselves, I have to think that it was a kind of a radicalizing experience to realize that your boss is literally willing to risk your life in the name of like a little bit higher profit margin for the the corporate overhead. Yeah, I think that's really true. I mean, a number of laundry workers who are members also of Workers United, Workers United is the Industrial Laundry Workers Union at this point. Um, and, you know, calling industrial laundry workers essential during a pandemic, which they were, there are still banners up in most of the industrial laundries around Phoenix inside the lunchroom saying you are essential and things like that. Mm. It was really a way of, as one of the shop stewards of one of the industrial laundry workers here, put it to me, he said, um, this you see that where it says you are essential? All it really says to us is get your butt to work, mm. even though there's a pandemic. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think it was radicalizing for them to realize that there's a pandemic going on and we're going to sort of slap this shiny title on it to make it sound nicer to us or more palatable to us. This message that we're basically telling you we don't care about your life and you have to get your butt to work. Anyway, and also I think it was surprising. Some of them got um, added hazard pay to their paychecks for some amount of time during the pandemic. Dollar increase, $2 increase for the hours that they worked. Um, And then that money disappeared out of their paychecks. And I think they realized, okay, they were calling us essential and somehow they were able to afford to pay me, you know, a dollar increase is only 40 more dollars a week. They were somehow able to pay us that $40 more a week without going bankrupt or having to shut down. And now that money's just disappeared from my paycheck. That seems like a really raw deal to me. <laughs> um, so I think you're right that there, um, the pandemic brought into much sharper focus, not only the raw deal that workers are getting, but the fact that it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. I created space to imagine other ways for it to be. What did you make of, uh, when we talked to Chris Smalls on the show before the vote, um, you know, he talked about how they're, they're doing the union on their own. Like they're going it independent. Um, I I remember during that podcast, sort of my intuitive feeling about that was like, I kind of like that. I like the fact that, that you're trying to do it on your own. And, um, you know, some, a theory some people have floated is that it, it sort of made them fly under the radar a little bit. They were viewed almost dismissed out of hand, like no way this is going to work. So maybe there wasn't even as strong of a resistance as there could have been if it was coming from a, you know, a more experienced challenger, if you will. What do you make of that approach of going like the, the independent way that he did? And do you think that that approach is something that can be replicated, not just at other Amazon stores, which, Yes, can it be replicated in other, uh, you know, Amazon facilities, but can it also be replicated in, you know, other businesses as well? Absolutely, it can be replicated. Yes. Um, and I hope that 
workers take that as a cue that they can do that themselves. You can stand up and get together with some of your coworkers and decide that you're going to form a union and figure out how to do it on your own. Absolutely. And it should be happening. You know, union approval ratings, whatever that means, I still try to imagine every time I hear union approval ratings are up. <laughs> you when know, they poll people, more and more, more people now have a favorable view of unions than they have in a very long time. I often wonder what the question is that goes into that poll. But, um, you know, I think it's true that people have it generally, they know what unions are more than they have in the recent past and they think that they're generally a good thing, right? And I think unions right now don't even have the capacity necessarily to go out and figure out how to harness that positivity and the energy that comes along with it. And I hope that workers decide now's the time we're gonna organize ourselves, but also realize that there are unions that exist who can help to supply some infrastructure to mm. your campaign. It should be your campaign, but like, look, sometimes you're going to need to phone bank, <laughs> find a union that will help you do that. Find a union that will help you connect all the information you have about your coworkers to like action network or something so that you can text everyone all at the same time, you know, find a union that will pay for your copies. <laughs> mm. Like there, you know, it takes money and resources to do some of the basic things and you, that's, unions are there to help with that. So connect to a union when it's the right time, when you need those resources and that infrastructure, but do it on your own. You can. Yeah. And I know ALU did have some of that um, support from established unions, especially, you know, providing a space for phone banking and, and some guidance and, um, and those sorts of things that I'm sure was invaluable for them. The other thing I was thinking about reading your book was how important sort of understanding the history of labor, just the basics of what a union is, what it means, what your rights are, how essential all of that is, and how completely absent it is in American society. I mean, you know, I am, as as I think you know, very big supporter of unions, very big supporter of labor, and yet I have tremendous blind spots on, like, basic history of mm. labor struggle in America because you don't learn about it anywhere in our textbooks, anywhere even in college. Like, it's very much erased from um, American history. And so reading your book, which includes um, some wonderfully retold union history, but also thinking about the culture with you know, I don't think it's an accident that Chris Small's mom is in uh, SEIU 1199. This other worker organizer, I mentioned Angelica, her mom is in the same union. New York is the highest density of unionization in the entire country. And so that's not only where the Amazon labor union gets its first win. It's also where the, the Starbucks movement ultimately launches. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I think, of course, I think labor history should be taught. It's basic civics. I mean, you want, to, you want to understand sort of the structure of law in this country, anything from employment law to, um, you know, health and safety law like OSHA to the NLRA. All of that is part and part of labor history. Um, <clears throat> and I think, I think it's an important part of learning what it means to be an active citizen in this country. Um, so I think it should be taught. But I'm also really interested in the ways that we, even as organizers, are taught 
to tell the history of the unions that we work for. I worked for Unite, which was an offshoot of the legendary International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which has a deep, rich history, especially back to New York. Um, in New York City in the early 1900s, the uprising of the 20,000, um, the atrocity that was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire are all foundational to that union's understanding of itself and its place in history and its own importance, its own mythos, really, right? And as organizers, we're taught to tell those stories. In fact, Workers United is an offshoot of Unite. So we had an organizing committee meeting of Starbucks workers, both from Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, who met up together for a kind of summit. And there we were telling those stories again, because they're foundational to, to that union. And it's important that we connect today's struggles with the historical struggles of workers. Um, but the ways that we tend to tell those stories, I think, are really interesting to me. It's like we focus sometimes on the sort of heroes and the highlights real, as if what it takes to build a union are those cinematic moments of you know, Sally Field standing on the table holding up the union sign right. or a Clara Lemlick, early hero of the ILGWU, getting hoisted as, as it was reported that she was kind of a, an anonymous wisp of a girl, hoisted up onto the stage at Cooper Union and calling for a general strike. And the next day, 20,000 workers followed her into the streets, you know. And we tell the story in that way and I'm not really sure what it means. You know, like, is that supposed to inspire workers today to be like Clara Lemlick, like to be an anonymous person and then stand up in front of everyone and call for a strike and workers will just follow you into the street? Of course, it doesn't work that way. And that's not really what happened. Clara Lemlick was a skilled worker organizer, and she had spent years, literally years before that speech that she gave at Cooper Union, organizing strike committees at 500 garment shops across New York. And everyone in that meeting hall, thousands of workers there, knew who she was when she got hoisted up onto that stage to call for a general strike. They knew she was going to call for the strike, and they, were, they already knew that they were going to strike the next day, right? It's like the story of Rosa Parks that we, I learned when I was young, that mm -hmm. she was a tired woman who just did not want to get up and move her seat. And of course, that's not true. She was an organizer. She was deeply embedded in the civil rights movement. And, this and that's why was, that worked. To right. And this moment was planned. And a lot of work, replicable work, was done and foundation laid before that sort of cinematic moment ever occurs. Exactly. And so two things. One, that the work was organizing and it's replicable right? This sort of bizarre idea that there is this just moment of pure luck and bravery that she was hoisted up onto the stage and called for a strike and everyone followed her. Like that is not replicable. I don't know why we tell the story in that way. We shouldn't do it. It, <laughs> it does us a disservice. <laughs> it's organizing work, right? It's just, she did hard, long, kind of the grind of, of organizing. She was a worker leader who organized her shop and all the shops around her. And they went on strike and they won. Um, and that's the story that I think needs to be told. We, we tend to decontextualize the moments of heroism 
from the work of organizing. And I think it does us a, dis, a disservice, right? And also, I don't think that the, the demonstration, the uprising of the 20,000 that followed it was a demonstration of strength, right? But what it demonstrated was that a union had already been built. Mm. The strike didn't build the union. The union had been built through the hard work of organizing that Clara and her other organizing committee members did. That's when a union gets built, through the tedious kind of repetitive tasks of forming a union. And those more cinematic moments are demonstrations that you've done that work and you've built your union, right? Um, anyway, that's my my soapbox about <laughs> labor history. I write about this in the book, but, um, you know, it's to me as an organizer who tells the story still today of the history of our union, it's important to me that we don't decontextualize the stories from the hard work of organizing. Yeah. Because that's what it takes. What's your sense of the current NLRB and how it compares to Trump's and um, because I saw a more perfect union thing the other day where they were talking about they're uh, acting very quickly on Starbucks and their union busting tactics. So that was something that, you know, made me feel a little bit of hope. Uh, What's your take on it? I think that um, they, some of the people in higher up positions at the NLRB have very good intentions. In fact, that, you know, the head of the NLRB this morning about a memo to the regions across the country asking them to take a look at how captive audience meetings, which typically have been held over the last several decades, have been allowed. You're allowed to have a captive audience meeting, meaning company can pull workers who are on the clock into a room and campaign against the union um, and require them to be in the room to listen to it require workers to listen to the anti-union campaign, right? And she's asking them now, just as of this morning, to take a look at that. And and she says, look, it's an anomaly that we're allowing companies to campaign against the union while workers are on the clock. Um, And it shouldn't be allowed. We should, this should be illegal. Um, So I think that's very good. I think there are some people with really good intentions. I don't think they're moving very quickly on Starbucks. Um, I mean, you know, some of the workers who've been fired recently had been um, written up and threatened and pressured, and ULPs had already been brought against the company um, because of their treatment. And then the company was allowed to fire them even after that. Um, and part of it is that the NLRB is really, really underfunded and understaffed right now, so they cannot move quickly. Mm-hmm. The other part of it is just that it's not in the tradition of the NLRB to move quickly enough to really protect groups of workers who are trying to form unions. It's not holding up its constitutional responsibility. Um, you know, the, the agency was created to protect workers' right to organize, and they're not doing it. I think it's partly that they're not able to, and partly it's just that it's it's not built into the DNA of the organization to do it. Can you labor talk, law is broken? Can Maybe. you talk a little bit more about how labor law is broken? Because I saw another hopeful thing: an interview with the new general counsel of the NLRB saying she wants to revisit Joy Silk 
And I'm going to let you explain that because you'll probably do a better job than I am. But I'll take a rough crack at it and then you can clean up my mess. Basically, for, you know, a, a number of years, if you had workers who a majority of whom turned in cards saying, yes, we want a union, then the presumption was they get a union. And businesses, the burden was more on the business to prove that for whatever reason, there isn't actually a majority here. And then furthermore, if as they, you know, so they they turn in their cards, that's it, they get a union, typically. Then if there's some extraordinary reason where they say, no, no, we don't really think it's a majority, we're going to go to an election. Then if they violated those workers' rights in a provable way, there was still a process in place that would basically say, you're screwing around in this election, you're breaking the rules, so they're, we're going to force you to the table, we're going to force you to recognize this union. That was that sort of uh, doctrine was overturned by a Supreme Court case. And now we've been living under this sort of more hellish process where companies get every possible opportunity to break the union and threaten workers and fire them and bully them and intimidate, intimidate them with very few repercussions. This new general counsel is saying basically she wants to um, return to the previous era. So first of all, can you explain that in a little bit simpler terms, what that means and how much easier that would make your job as a union organizer and how much easier would it make it for workers who actually want to unionize to be able to unionize? I think your district, your description of Joy Silk was really good. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> I mean, that's right, that workers should only have to vote or indicate that they want to form a union one time, right? And they do that when they sign union cards. The union cards they sign say, I want to join a union and I want this to be a union workplace. If a majority of workers in a worksite sign those cards, that should be enough. They have voted to form a union, and the union should be recognized by the NLRB and by the company, and the next step is go to the bargaining table. And the the joint, you know, the Supreme Court decision that led to the overturning of that doctrine puts the secondary process into place where workers right now under broken labor law have to vote twice. And the distance between the first vote when they sign union cards and the second vote, which is when the NLRB administers their election, their secret ballot election, is a big window of time in which the company can do good boss, sad boss, bad boss, um, you know, and every mixture and overlap thereof and campaign brutally and viciously against workers' union, the union they've already decided and voted to form, right? So, you know, in Starbucks right now, that process has been months long. A majority of workers in a worksite, sometimes 100% of the workers in a worksite, this has happened in a couple of stores, one of them right here in Pittsburgh, 100% of the workers signed union cards saying, we want to form a union. They told the company, we have unanimous support for the union in this store. And still the company says, well, we're going to go to an election. <laughs> the company has every right. And it used to be an expectation that they would outright recognize the union and begin bargaining. And now the default is to go to an election. And the window is weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So we're talking like two and a half months, three months, sometimes longer that the company buys themselves to hold captive audience meetings, campaign against the union, 
tell workers they're going to lose benefits, start writing people up for minor infractions that they were not written up for before, sometimes fire union leaders, just do everything they can to try to erode support. And then what the second vote ends up looking like is not really, um, would you like to have a union at this work site? That's not really the question of the second vote, the NLRB election. The question is really, do you still want to have a union after this war that we've launched and waged against you for months, right? Mm. Is your union worth the war? Mm. That's really the question on the second ballot, even though it doesn't say that in so many words. It's a really unfair process and it needs to change. And, um, you know, reinstating Joy Silk would go a long way toward doing that. Another piece of it, though, is, you know, there's a a labor law legislation that's been proposed that's being backed by unions and some legislators called the PRO Act. Um, And it would do a lot of what reinstating Joyce Silk would do, but it would also give the NLRB or the NLRA some teeth. Meaning right now, usually what happens if companies violate the law and we go through the huge long process in the NLRB of having charges filed and investigated and then have a hearing and then have the decision from the administrative law judge that oversees the hearing, which is a very long process, right? By the end of it, if you win an unfair labor practice charge against a company, whether they've threatened workers or illegally written people up or surveilled workers or fired workers, more often than not, the remedy for that, the strictest remedy that the NLRB can impose is that the company has to put up a sign in the workplace saying, we violated the law, we're sorry, and we won't do it again. Oh my God. That's it. Pathetic. If you're a company like Starbucks or Amazon, and you're like, okay, on the one hand, we could recognize the union, which will profoundly change the balance of power in our company. (laughs) Or we could violate the law, and maybe a couple of years from now, we might have to apologize for it. Like, what would you do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's but, like when, I mean, they, that reminds me of when, like, you know, there was colossal amounts of fraud committed on Wall Street, and then they the, they get fined for less than what they made with the fraud. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what that reminds me of. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Daisy, there's another piece of the PRO Act that also is really important, which is um, I think it's very important for people to understand that winning the union election is the first step then you have to get a contract. Mm. And right now, basically, it's a similar dynamic. Companies can pretend like they're negotiating in good faith, but not really be negotiating in good faith and keep from coming to terms on a contract effectively indefinitely. The PRO Act would compel them to come to terms through a sort of like mediation. So they wouldn't have that ability to just like push the contract off indefinitely. Can you talk through what that process is? So for the Starbucks workers who have now won their union elections, for the Amazon workers, 8,000 some at the Staten Island warehouse who just voted for union election. And I know they're pushing for contract negotiations to begin immediately. What are they facing now? So the next couple steps of that process tend to be in, you know, in work sites where I've um, helped to lead campaigns where workers have won unions is we workers really work in a democratic way to decide what they want to bargain over. So they usually elect a bargaining committee 
in my view, the bigger the bargaining committee, the better. Um, they elect people to represent them at the bargaining table with the company. So there are workers who sit down at the table and help to bargain the contract or do all of the bargaining of the contract, depending on what they want. And then they tend to survey all of the workers who are members of the union and ask them questions about what's most important. What should we focus on? What are the things that are we absolutely have to fight for? What are the things that there's some leeway on, you know, and they construct a list of demands and priorities. And then that bargaining team takes those demands and priorities and tries to put it into language that they would propose putting into a collective bargaining agreement. And they sit down with the company and begin bargaining. Typically, bargaining happens where you negotiate the, the non-financials first. So all the language in the contract that protects workers, like just cause and a grievance procedure and sort of rights about scheduling and seniority and things like that. And then you get to the economic issues that are going to cost the company money. Those are the things that, you know, you have to fight usually the hardest for because companies hate to part with their money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's sort of what bargaining looks like. It takes many, many sessions. It takes a lot of training sometimes. Workers have to work really hard with each other to make sure that they are all on the same page before they go to the bargaining table. And then there's a long process of being as transparent as possible about what's happening at the bargaining table, how making sure it's being communicated to all of the workers at the work site. Um, effectively, there are a lot of general membership meetings that tend to happen during bargaining so that people can stay on the same page and not fall for the company's messaging about what's going on at the bargaining table, things like that. But I, the way I think about bargaining tends to be, look, the NLRA says that companies are required to sit down and bargain with workers once their union has been certified and recognized, Right. And that they have to bargain in good faith is what the the law says, which means they're not supposed to just sit there and cross their arms at the table or plug their ears with their fingers and not listen and jerk around at the the bargaining table. They're supposed to actually be moving toward an agreement with workers every step of the way. That's what it means to bargain in good faith. But of course, companies don't tend to do that. They Mm -hmm. sit down. They want to give as little as possible. They have to kind of make it look like they're bargaining in good faith, um, but there are not a lot of, um, you know, there aren't a lot of consequences if they don't do that. So the PRO Act, as you said, would go a long way toward um, actually creating some sort of structure to that so that if companies aren't bargaining in good faith, there's a mediator who can step in and force them to bargain in better faith. But in bargaining, what companies really want at the end of the day, is to have peace with the union. They're buying, in a, in a collective bargaining agreement, they're buying peace for the term of the agreement, right? They want to know that people aren't going to go on strike or shut down the factory or disrupt. They want to know that for the next two or three or four or five years, whatever the length of the contract is, that the, the company is going to be able to run, they're going to be able to get production out. And that's what they're buying, right? And I say buying because they come to the table and they put money on the table that will go into the contract. Mm -hmm. And what they get in return 
is feeling like there's some sense of control for the next several years of the contract that they're going to be able to run the work site and get production out, whatever the production is, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to make companies want to come to the table and want peace badly enough to give you what you want in your contract, you have to really have a credible threat of there not being peace, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah, I mean, they have to really want it. You have to make them want it. Um, and so to me, that's what workers at, you know, I can't speak for the workers at Staten Island or for the workers at Starbucks or anywhere else, but to keep that in mind, I think is really crucial that to get to the bargaining table from and bargain from a position of strength, you have to have a credible threat of there not being peace, of there being a lot of strife for the company to take you seriously and bargain and listen to your demands and come to an agreement with you. I think that is really important to keep in mind. Um, Lastly, Daisy, you know, you, it comes across in the book are, and in our interviews with you, very humble person, but I have to tell you how much I admire you and your own bravery and courage and willingness to put yourself out there for something that you clearly, clearly believe very much in. And I just would love for you to end on explaining to people why you think unions and organized labor are so essential just to have a sort of basic functioning democracy. What is it that called this to you as as being your life work? Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, look, I think their unions are the best mechanism that working people in this country have for ensuring their voice is heard and for building power for themselves in an economy that is otherwise set up to just suck money and resources and time and labor out of working people upward to the very wealthiest people in this country and in the world. The only mechanism we have to resist that and to reverse it is the labor movement, is organizing and organizing labor so that we can we can stand up to that kind of power, right? I think there are a lot of forces at play that will divide working people from each other. And unions at their very best can transcend all of those pressures and create um, an empowered enough working class to actually see resources be returned back to the, the workers who create the wealth that is being extracted, right? I think that is I think all. the labor movement is, yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> no, you continue. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> um, guys, the book is on the line. Um, it is excellent. It's a great personal human story. It's a great story of struggle. It's got uh, some labor history in it that is really essential also to be an informed citizen in the country. So I highly recommend it to all of you. Daisy, it is so great speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Our pleasure. All right. That was Daisy Pitkin. Uh, I know you're reading her book and you love her book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, for me, it's got it all. (laughs) But 
I um, really appreciate the sort of nitty gritty of what this process actually looks like, which unfortunately far too many Americans are kind of disconnected from at this point just because union rates are so incredibly low. And so to see someone like Daisy, who has like been in the trenches of the struggle for decades now, oftentimes with very little hope that the overall tide is going to turn for labor to see her super hopeful and energized about this moment that we're living through is really cool and very exciting. Yeah, because that makes you think it's not going to stop, right? Yeah. I mean, she what she said about how witnessing the courage of others and the strength of yourself and the capacity to fight, like that just engenders more capacity to fight in more people across the country. We're seeing it in real time. You know, we saw it with Starbucks. They started with one location in Buffalo that was able to successfully unionize and boom, that thing took off across the country. And now we see it with Amazon labor where, you know, already dozens of buildings have reached out to say to them to say, hey, me too. And this is a company that not a single warehouse has ever been unionized in the U.S. And even you see it, I mean, in Bessemer, the union is down in the count by a 100 or so ballots still in the game, though, because there's more than 400 that have been challenged. So there's still a glimmer of hope there. But you can see just in the time from the first election to now, there's been a tremendous shift. So, you know, I very much believe that unions are not only critical for workers to have democracy and a voice in their workplaces, but they're critical for workers to have democracy and a voice in this country at all. And if you don't have that counterweight, I mean, that's how you end up with the uh, new Gilded Gilded Age excesses and lack of real democracy that we have right now. I like how she said, basically, in order to get any leverage at all, you have to like basically cause good trouble. You got to be ready to be militant. You got to have a credible threat of, hey, we'll shut it down. No problem. You're not going to bargain with this. We'll walk out. We'll shut it down. Which is an argument for being ballsy and and having a spine. Yeah. And like, so, you know, the second that management starts to squeal a little bit and people might want to back off, it's like, actually, no, that's when you're supposed to pounce harder to let them know, like, this is our leverage. Our leverage is we can shut this shit down if need be. So you better come and negotiate in good faith. And like she says, Buy peace. Right. Like, oh, you want to buy peace? Okay, we want X amount Here's our of price. paid vacation time. We want mm-hmm. wages higher. We want these benefits. It's like, well, that's why you get a situation where, you know, unionized workers on average make, I forget the exact number, but I used to know, I used to talk about it all the time on the show. It's like $1,500 more in wages on average, and then, you know, they get more benefits as well. So Right. Well, I saw um, another great interview from my friend Eric Blank over at Jacobin with one of the um, labor organizers at ALU who uh, is an immigrant, and he was really integral in organizing some of the African immigrant communities in particular at that Amazon warehouse. And I think he was the one who was talking about, like, Look, we're New Yorkers. We see that this unions are critical for the firefighters and the police and the sanitation workers. And we see that it provides them with a more stable livelihood and with decent benefits and with pension benefits either. So we get it. So for so long, for my entire life, we've been in this downward spiral where unions are ebbing away and ebbing away and ebbing away. And it's less obvious to people when they make up such a you know small percentage of the working public. It's much less obvious what the benefit is. And you just fall out of connection with the language and the process and the culture of all of it and the values that undergird it. And so this might be a, a pivotal point 
where we start to get a virtuous cycle, where people are seeing what's happening and seeing how it's benefiting these workers and saying, yeah, if they can do it, I can do it too. And you know what? They Amazon is this big, scary company, but they managed to pull it off. So what am I really afraid of? We might be at a place where we're in that virtuous circle. It's still lord with the laws as it is and how rigged i mean it is still such an uphill battle and it is still the case that last year union rates continue to decline and it is still the case that you know the labor uprisings that we're seeing now don't compare in any respect with the numbers of like the 1930s but these are some really compelling stories, some really compelling demonstrations and uh, sort of education in real time of why this stuff matters. And so, yeah, that's why I find it to be so hopeful. And to hear Daisy kind of validate that, I think, is also really important. Yeah, I th- I think it's just birthed that a necessity because people realize ain't no ca- cavalry coming to save you. Mm-hmm. It's coming to save you. You got to save yourself. And so if it's birthed that a necessity, that's where you get like, it's almost like people are like, well, what other options do we have? We have no other, that's, I mean, again, to bring up the Amazon situation, it was literally like Chris and like Bob and Steve and Jennifer, and <laughs> they just turned to each other and they were like, we ought to try some shit, right? And so that, it like, that's where it stems from. It stems from like, Republicans aren't going to help you. The Democrats are, it's the ratchet effect. Like, okay, Democrats might stop it from getting objectively worse, but they're just like coasting, right? Mm-hmm. It's the ratchet effect. And so you look at them and you're like, nobody's going to save us. Nobody's going to, you know, do right by us. So we have to save ourselves. And I think that's pretty much where it's birthed from. Yeah. I mean, they made Chris into a man who had nothing to lose. He'd already lost his job. He's like, right. he's, I lost my job. I've been smeared by y'all. You want to make me the face of the union campaign? All right, here we go. Yep. And the the consistent theme coming out of the Starbucks movement and the Amazon movement is just how individually empowered and in charge those workers were. And everybody felt like they were empowered to sort of play their part and do their role in organizing and take these bold actions and demonstrate to people, hey, we can thumb our nose at management. We can piss Amazon off. And you know what? They're really, it's sort of that that dynamic of standing up to the bully and exposing that they're a bit of a paper tiger. So, Or David versus Goliath is another. That's it. That's it. That, that's actually a real historical event. So, but. I mean, this this. <laughs> Next period is going to be extremely critical because, first of all, the economy could well be facing a downturn, which is going to hand more power to the bosses and less to the workers. Um, but second of all, I mean, the capitalizing on the momentum is absolutely crucial here. So being able to strike while the iron's hot, while the memory of this victory is fresh before there aren't a million other like depressing <laughs> news items that go in the opposite direction we're going to see over the next year whether this is an aberration or whether this is truly a a revolution and a a new moment. And you guys know what I'm hoping for. Yep. Same here. All right, guys, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Love you guys. See you next week. (laughs) 